You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open God's Word together. This afternoon we turn to the Gospel according to Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 27. We're going to read, first of all, this afternoon about Peter's denial of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we're also going to read about Christ's suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church confesses and summarizes that in Lord's Day 15 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You'll notice that here in this part of the Catechism we are still dealing with the Apostles' Creed and that part of the Apostles' Creed that deals with the person, especially the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Last time in Lord's Day 14, we looked at the fact that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and this time we will look at the expression in the Apostles' Creed that he suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified. What do you confess when you say that he suffered? During all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he has redeemed our body and soul 
from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. And if you have time today, you may want to look up the proof texts from which this answer is taken below, answer 37. Then we turn to 38. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge, though innocent Christ was condemned by an earthly judge? And so he freed us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Does it have a special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a different way? Yes, thereby I am assured that he took upon himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, it is appropriate that as we deal with this part of the Heidelberg Catechism's treatment of the Apostles' Creed, that we ask the question, are you aware of all that Jesus Christ has done for you? Do you know it? Do you understand it? Do you appreciate it? Can you vocalize it? Suppose that tomorrow someone was to confront you and ask you, why are you so committed to Jesus Christ? Could you give that person a clear, concise, and complete answer? And indeed, I might ask, what would your answer sound like? Perhaps you say, well, I would tell that person about the absolute uniqueness of my Savior, the fact that he is true God as well as true man. Or I would tell him or them about his wonderful words and his miraculous deeds. Or even more, I would tell them about how he has died for all of my sins. Yes, and if I have time, I would tell them too about his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, his return one day on the clouds to gather all of his people together and to make a new heaven and a new earth. Now, that's a good answer. It's also fairly comprehensive, but but suppose, just suppose, that this person wants to know even more. Suppose they want to know more about the benefits of belonging to Jesus Christ. What would you say? What would you say besides the fact that he paid for all my sins? Well, beloved, perhaps here is where Lord's Day 15 of the Heidelberg Catechism can help us out. For in this particular Lord's Day, we are confronted with the sufferings of our Lord, and there we see, perhaps better than anywhere else, what really and truly he has done for us. There we go into the depths, you might say, in order that afterwards we might scale the heights of his great, glorious, redeeming work. So I'd like to preach to you this afternoon on the following theme, Our Savior Suffers Like No Other. And we're going to see that he bears God's wrath for us. He suffers God's judgment for us. He takes God's curse for us. 
Well, beloved, Lord's Day 15 opens, and as you can see, it zeroes in on one word, really, one word from the Apostles' Creed, the word suffered. Now, that's not so surprising. After all, I think we understand by now that suffering is part of the warp and the woof of our daily life. It's all about living. Perhaps when you're young, you don't really understand too much of this because maybe you haven't suffered that much. Maybe once in a while there was a disappointment or perhaps even a spanking or a toothache or an earache or maybe a visit to the dentist. Even though I'm a lot older than the young people here, I still remember and I think I was traumatized years ago by a visit to the dentist where in those days they used gas to put you out before they extracted any teeth. Only the gas didn't work, and the teeth still got extracted. So the result is that still today, whenever I think of a dentist, I suffer. And I don't like to go there. Maybe some of the young people have that same kind of experience. Hopefully not. Of course, if you're older, you know even more about suffering because life has taught you through its experience about the fact that So often there is disappointment, there is setback, there is struggle, financial or otherwise. There can be health concerns, there can be relationship problems, there can be sickness. And of course, as we once again experienced as a community this past week, there can be death, as in the passing suddenly of our brother Ray Coot. So life, beloved, is suffering. And of course, that's something that not only we experience, but it's something we see all around us. You open your newspapers in the morning and you read them, you turn on the television, you watch the news, and all you see is a lot of negative, nasty stuff, whether it comes from Iraq, from Afghanistan, from Pakistan, whether it comes in the form of earthquakes in Haiti, Chile, or China, whether it comes even with respect to oil spills and the Gulf Coast and so forth, every day again we're reminded of the brokenness of this life and of this world and of the reality of suffering. And so when here in the Apostles' Creed and as the Catechism takes up that word suffering, as we come across it, we're not surprised. And neither are we particularly surprised to read that Jesus Christ suffered. We expected, we could even have predicted it. And in light of what we've said, we could also have predicted that last phrase in answer 37, where it speaks about during all the time he lived on earth. That could be said of us too, right? All the time we live on earth, there is this aspect of suffering, disappointment, loss, struggle. And in addition, we could have predicted that other phrase too, especially at the end. As you get older, it doesn't necessarily get better, not physically often. Thankfully, our spirits are renewed, and the promises of God overwhelm our physical sufferings, but they're there, especially at the end. And so we ask ourselves, what's so special about the fact that the confession says that Christ suffered? And why does the creed mention this? And what can we learn from it? Well, beloved, what we need to be aware of is the fact that while our Lord suffered too, he also suffered 
in an absolutely unique manner. And you know, that comes out in that expression from answer 37, the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Look at that expression. There it talks about the source of the suffering of Christ. It talks about the reason for the suffering of Christ. And it talks about the character of his suffering. Look first of all to the source. Where does the suffering of Jesus Christ ultimately come from? The catechism echoing the scripture says it comes from God. Now that's remarkable, that's unusual, that's also somewhat controversial. When we suffer in this life, it is due to what other people do to us, or it perhaps is due to our circumstances, or because of our own faults and mistakes and failures. Our pain is so often caused by those around us, or even those close to us, or even we cause it to ourselves. Our accidents and illnesses come to us because of the nature of this broken down life. And of course we know, we know that God is in control of all things. And that whatever happens to us in this life is part of his providence. But still we do not see him as the direct or the immediate source of all of our woes. But you know, when it comes to Jesus Christ... Lord's Day 15 makes it very clear that what Christ suffers comes from God. It comes from the Father. It comes from heaven. God is the source. Do you remember what it says in Isaiah 53.10? Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. So ultimately, God is the source here. And the reason, well, that's also here, it has to do with the sin of the whole human race. Now, that too is somewhat of an unusual answer. What it stresses is that Christ's sufferings are not connected to his own shortcomings, as ours so often are. Frequently, we suffer for the things we say and we do or the things that we neglect to do or to say. And as well, countries are often the authors of their own mess and misery. But not so with Jesus Christ. His sufferings come completely from outside sources. Actually, they are caused by one great outside source, if you will, and it's called sin. Sin, a little word that spells a huge disaster. Sin as rebellion against God, as rejection of God, as disobedience, transgression, iniquity, darkness, death. Sin is the basic human predicament. And then notice as well that this sin is universal. It's the sin of the whole human race. All people without exception. 
All human beings are included in this, male and female, rich and poor, white and black, educated and uneducated, all live in sin. So the source is God. The reason is the sin of the whole human race. And that brings us to the character of this suffering. And what is it like? What is it all about? What does it represent? In one word, wrath. Or as they sometimes say, wrath. Christ gets to bear in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Now, if you think about that for a moment, that's something that should take your breath away. Imagine, just imagine if you can, and I don't think we really can, but imagine being the object not of human wrath, but of divine wrath. Imagine that God takes out all of his anger, his displeasure, his hurt, and his disgust on you because of the sins everyone else has done. Would you like to be held accountable for the sins of others? Think of Adam, Noah, Jacob, David, Paul. Would you like their sins to be shoved into your shoes or sandals? And then we haven't even considered the sins of so many others who have visited death and destruction, pain and suffering, violence and upheaval on this world. Think of Stalin and Hitler and Mao, and Paul Pot, And the list goes on and on and on. Is this mere thought not unbearable? The stuff of nightmares and horror movies? Well, it is. But you know, this is what happened to Christ. The sins of the world, the sins of his people, the sins of mankind were credited to him and to his account. God held him responsible for them. And God directed his divine pleasure at him because of them. Yes, and it's God who did this. I know, I know we live in the age of the irrelevant God. As far as many people are concerned, God exists, but he doesn't really matter. He tolerates everyone, he gets along with everybody, he ruffles no feathers and steps on no toes. And I know as well that we live, as far as many people are concerned, in the age of the nice God. You see, these days God has a new image. He's been sanitized. And qualities like justice and anger and righteousness and holiness have all been erased from his character. But you know, regardless of what people may think or pretend, God remains God. He remains true to himself. The biblical picture remains accurate. He's the God who hates sin. 
and punishes it. He has to punish it. Yes, and that is what he does in his son. On him descends all of the wrath of God against the sin of mankind. And that, beloved, is a most awful, unique thing. But you know, at the same time, it's also a most wonderful thing. It's wonderful for all of those of us who believe in him. It means that the divine wrath which should have fallen on us has fallen on someone else. It means that another has taken our place. It means that another has stood where we should have been standing. Yes, and that another is Jesus Christ. He took the wrath of God upon himself so that we could receive the redemption of God. You know, the catechism summarizing so many scripture passages puts it wonderfully when it says, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. And so, beloved, when people ask you about Christ, And what he's done for you, you need to remember this wrath of God. Relate how he has taken the wrath that should have been on you and voluntarily taken it upon himself. Tell them how he has saved you from everlasting damnation and destruction. Describe for them what it means to live under the umbrella of his grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Impress upon them that through faith in Jesus Christ, they may enjoy the same splendid, marvelous blessings. But at the same time, do not stop there. For notice, the creed, the Apostles' Creed, doesn't stop there either. As a matter of fact, the creed links the suffering of Jesus Christ with Someone else, Pontius Pilate. The actual expression in the confession is suffered under Pontius Pilate. We even have both of his names. Now you may wonder about that. You might wonder, what is a spineless character like Pontius Pilate doing in this magnificent Christian statement of faith? It's one thing for Mary to be mentioned. Mary is Jewish. Mary is a believer. Mary becomes a servant of God. But you know, Pilate, on the other hand, is nothing more than an unbeliever, a Roman, a self-server, a man-pleaser. So what's Pontius Pilate doing in the Apostles' Creed? Well, there are a number of reasons for this. First, he's there to remind us that the sufferings of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection were all real 
that they took place in a certain time, a certain place, for a certain person. In short, it's to remind us that this marvelous faith of ours isn't based on fiction. But what the Bible says happened really did happen. That we're dealing with an actual historical event here. Second, Pontius Pilate is here to remind us of the fact that Jesus Christ was judged. Pilate, whether you like him or not, represents the bar of human justice. And Pilate is, if we take Romans chapter 13 seriously, a servant and minister of God. It's his duty to preside over the affairs of men. It's his calling to judge justly. It's his responsibility to hand out proper sentences. And, of course, we know that he did not do so in the case of Jesus Christ. But still, Christ did appear before a real human judge. He was judged officially. And third, Pontius Pilate is there to remind us of a deeper judgment. Because you know, when the gavel of Pontius Pilate went down declaring Jesus Christ to be guilty on earth, there is a sense in which the gavel of justice also went down in heaven declaring Christ to be guilty. You know, before Pontius Pilate, he stands as the one accused by the Jews of blasphemy against God and rebellion against Rome. But before the throne of God, he stands as nothing else than the sin bearer, the iniquity carrier. As Isaiah 53 says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I think, beloved, fourthly, Pontius Pilate is there to remind us of where you and I should actually be standing. For the fact of the matter is, that Christ shouldn't really be standing before this judge. If anything, we should be standing there. You and I deserve to be there. Because of our sins and transgressions, we deserve to be there. The judgment that falls on Christ is actually the judgment that should have been meted out to us. And the sentence that he received is the sentence that we have earned. So you see, beloved, when people ask you about Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, talk not just about the wrath of God, but also talk about, and distasteful as that may be, talk about the judgment of God. That he took our place before the judgment seat of God. Yes, describe that to them. And one more thing, beloved. And maybe that's the most awful 
thing of all, and I said we were going down into the depths, right? So we've gone to wrath, we're into judgment, and now we're into the most awful thing of all, and that's the curse of God. After Pontius Pilate had judged and condemned Jesus Christ, he sentenced him to death. It was not death by hanging, by firing squad, by guillotine, by electric chair or lethal injection. No, it was death by crucifixion. Now, I don't think that speaks to us modern Western people as much as it should. We read about this, we're told about this, but we don't always understand the shame and the horror and the dread of such a death. Probably you have to be somebody from the Middle East to really understand that. You know, in that, that world, in that time, most people who weren't Roman and who were found guilty of capital offenses were put to death by, by the sword. Quick. Or if you were a Roman citizen, you were often banished, kicked out of Italy. But if one was deemed to be a particularly nasty threat to Rome itself, then a particular cruel form of punishment was used, and that was death by hanging you on a tree. And you'd hang there. Days, sometimes weeks. People would walk by, see you, mock you, insult you, spit at you, throw stones at you. The birds would come and take care of your eyes and other parts of your flesh. And slowly, as a public spectacle, you would expire. In connection with this, we need to understand something else, and that is that, namely, crucifixion was used not just by the Romans. It was also used, by the way, by the Jews. Only the Jews did it differently, for in Deuteronomy 21, we learn that if a man is guilty of a criminal offense in Israel and was put to death, that once he was dead, his body could be hung on a tree. You see, the Jews would hang you there after you died. The, the Romans would hang you there while you were still living. And at the same time, the Romans would leave you there until there was absolutely nothing left and you crumpled to the ground. The Jews would only leave you there for a day because by nightfall you had to be taken down. And so the manner of crucifixion might have been somewhat different, but at the same time, the meaning is essentially the same. It both symbolizes the fact that you have been cursed by God. It testifies to the fact that you should actually never, ever even have been born. That you don't deserve the light of the sun. That you don't deserve the ground beneath your feet. That you don't deserve to be looked at and appreciated by other people. That you haven't got any communion with God. 
If you're cursed, you're utterly unwanted, totally rejected, and absolutely unfit for human life. We don't think of it, but, you know, Mary. Mary saw her son crucified. Other family members of Jesus also saw him crucified. Imagine what went through their minds in terms of the horror and the absolute disaster of this event. But you know, there's also a a deeper level even here. And it has to do with God the Father. For, you know, it's one thing to be cursed by Rome and by Pilate and even by the Jews. But in all of that, rests as well the curse of Almighty God. Why do you think the Lord Jesus at a certain moment in His suffering cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You, of everyone else in the universe, why have you forsaken me? That's the ultimate cry from the cross. That's the cry which tells you that all hope is gone. It's the cry that signals the fact that the curse of Almighty God has descended upon His only begotten Son. And so, beloved, here in Lord's Day 15, there's a lot of darkness, great darkness, a lot of suffering. But you know, there's also something else, and that's great, great substitution. For again, what Christ experiences on the cross as the accursed one is not the result of his own sin and guilt. No, it is the result of our sin and guilt. He hangs there as our substitute, as our representative, as our standard bearer. Those hills of Golgotha shouldn't have had one cross or even three crosses, but they should have had thousands upon thousands of crosses. And with us upon them. Because that's what we deserved. But there's only one real cross there. The cross of Jesus Christ. So that the hills of Judea wouldn't be populated with our crosses and our curse. So, beloved, when people ask you, when they ask you about Jesus Christ, tell them about his person. Tell them about his work. But tell them also especially about the wrath and the judgment and the curse of Almighty God. How He took it all upon Himself so that we didn't have to experience it.
And after you've told them all about that, then you need to drive the point home and you need to challenge them. And you need to ask them, where, where in all the world can you find a greater Savior than this? Where can you find someone more caring, more compassionate, more concerned about you and your situation and your future and your life? Where can you find a more loving Lord, a more gracious Savior, a more wonderful Redeemer? Truly, in Jesus Christ and in His death, And in his suffering, we see just what kind of Savior we really have. Hallelujah. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.com dot org.